Hello, and welcome to Maryland Chatters. I'm your host, Danielle Gaines. 2020 is an election year like no other. Voters are casting their ballots by mailbox and by dropbox like never before. Marylanders are turning out at early voting centers like never before. And for some high-profile Republicans, they're navigating this election season like never before. This week, Maryland Chatters caught up with Michael Steele, former Maryland Lieutenant Governor and Republican National Committee Chairman, who recently announced that he was crossing party lines to endorse Joe Biden for president. In an interview with Maryland Matters' Bruce DePoit, Steele explains his choice and the decision to go so public with his thoughts. He also reflects on his barrier-breaking election back in 2002 and his future political ambitions. We also hear from Patrick P.J. Hogan, the Annapolis lobbyist and Democratic vice chair of the Maryland State Board of Elections. My colleague Bennett LaCrone talked to Hogan about the start of early voting in the state, his own political transition from Republican state senator to Democratic state senator, and even the reason he'll never forget his wedding anniversary. In these pandemic times, our interviews were done over the phone. First, let's listen in on Bruce and Michael Steele two men who first crossed paths more than two decades ago, at a time when they both had more hair. They talked earlier this week. It's great to be able to talk with you. Um, Absolutely. I was thinking this morning, have you and I been been doing some version of this for 26 years? I think that's about right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little mind-blowing. I think that's about right. Yeah, you you so, uh, were you know you were a puppet coming into media, and I was a pup coming into politics. <laughs> yeah, I was covering uh, Mar- the Maryland General Assembly and Montgomery yeah. and Prince George's politics for News Channel Eight, uh, and I you know it occurred to me one day that I was interviewing a lot of Democrats, and I you know kind of challenged myself to be to to uh, get some different voices in the mix. And I think I called you up out of the blue, and I interviewed yeah. you. I think you had an office on K Street at the time. Yeah, I think yeah. you were doing educational consulting. Yeah, I was doing a, a yeah, uh, gosh, a cross section of stuff. It was in the educational space and in the small business space. Yeah, so it was it was back back in the day. I had hair. It was a beautiful thing. We had hair. We had hair. (laughs) Look, I've learned never to speak to another man's hair. All right. Well, let's, again, thank you for doing this. Let's jump in. Um, You made national headlines recently when you endorsed Joe Biden, and I was doing the obligatory Google search, and it's page. I mean, this thing got um, really noticed. This thing got a ton of play. Um, what brought you to the decision to endorse Joe Biden? Character, uh, service, respect for the American people, respect for constitutional norms, respect as a conservative for uh, small government, uh, and those things that that mattered. And you know, a lot of people kind of think you you know, oh well, you were always going to support Biden. No, that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, if Mike Pence were the nominee, we'd be having a very different conversation. If you know John Kasich was the nominee, it wouldn't even be a question. So it's it's not. It was there were a lot of factors that go into these decisions, and and I think for me, um, it, it really it was it really kind of put in stark relief what's happened to um, uh, the American people. We've gotten lazy in so many ways uh, regarding our republic and our efforts at democracy. Um, We take a lot for granted. We assume certain things will always be the way they are or always be there. And and that's not true. I mean, Donald Trump, for all of his warts, and God knows he has a lot of them, um, has showed up just how fragile this all is and how easily it can just slip through your fingers uh, with, you know, very fine rhetoric and, you know, uh, actions that people haven't seen before. It's like, oh, wow, did you see, 
you know, Air Force One landed and, you know, we did an event right next to the airplane. All the stuff that goes into reality TV that gets people sitting in front of their TV set every day with popcorn watching some really dumbass programming. But yet they lap it up like it's real life. Um, the reality of it is when it comes to our, 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 our institutions, our government, our way of life, our culture, our politics, our democracy, our constitution, those things are a lot more fragile than I think we appreciate them as being. And so I, I just I focused on that and realized that my country my country right now needs needs patriots to stand up, people who actually believe in the rule of law, not you know, using it as a cudgel or a hammer against communities, but using it as a way to protect those very same communities. And when things go a little bit off the rails are willing to work together to pull it back, you know. So all of these pieces for me mattered. And then the, the crown jewel of it was character. Um, it matters to me that the nature, the character, the quality of the individual who sits at the, in the Oval Office behind the Resolute Desk. Um, and, again, that's one of those things that we seemingly have stopped caring about. It matters more that we get a tax cut or deregulate you know, uh, government institutions than uh, the quality of the individuals who are, are making those decisions and decisions and implementing those changes. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, the parent uh, who has a straight-A student, and they're so proud of that student. They're so happy because they're getting what they want out of their child. They want them to be smart and straight-A's. So when they go to parent-teachers conference, the teacher says to them, yeah, your, your kid's getting straight A's and that's great, but you know he's a bully, that he's beating up kids on the playground and that he's making fun of little girls and he's calling uh, teachers and, and others' names. And then when the neighborhood parents come to them and say, hey, you know, your, your, your child is a real threat to the community here because he's, you know, uh, throwing bottles at people and making fun of them. And your only response is, yeah, but he's a straight-A student. That's, that's, we expect more than the good, good grades. As, as, uh, as a parent, as a community, and as a country, we expect more. So it matters to me. What sort of um, reaction have you had, uh, have you received from this? And has, did the vice president, did Vice President Biden call you afterwards? by any chance to, to reach out in any way? We actually, uh, I think word had gotten out to him that I was thinking about this very seriously, but I wanted to, I wanted to talk to him. You know, I just don't want to do this and, and not have a, a basis of conversation. I, and I've known, I've known the vice president from various things in the past. And, you know, we've danced on the political pinhead from, from time to time. Um, but it was it was an important conversation to answer that question first um, that um, I wanted to have and let him know what I was thinking and and we laughed about a lot of stuff we laughed about riding the train <laughs> the Amtrak train because we would event you know we invariably would miss each other on the train when I was heading up to New York or he was heading back to Delaware or, or coming to Washington. Um, and uh, the, but the conductors would always remind me. At least I don't know if they told him, but they would always remind me. They were like, "You missed your boy," <laughs> you know. He was he, he was he was he was just about to get on the train or just got off the train or whatever. Um, but you know, so how did you how did you find him? How did you how did that? Oh my did... gosh, it's it's like it was like talking to an old friend. I mean, it was it, it was um, uh, warm conversation, very compassionate. Um, conversation, and you can hear his expressed concern about the country and and how grateful he was. He recognizes the political uh, realities around what I was thinking of doing, and and recognized the political consequences of doing it potentially, uh, and really expressed his gratitude for that. He's like, it's not lost on me what this means um, to have. Uh, someone like you, you know, and we laughed about the fact that I went up against him and the and the president, President Obama, over health care when I was national chairman. And of course, it's like, yeah, I know, I know what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you put your mind to it. Uh, so we, we, you know, it was one of those conversations, and I just felt better about making the decision. Um, 
uh, after. So when we had the conversation, I had not made up my mind to do it. Uh, and so it, it meant a lot to have that. Uh, since I've made it, you know, uh, haters will always hate because that's what haters do. They they have nothing else left in them but that. Um, and so, you know, that 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 dark, gnarly knot in their in their you know that that place called their heart. That's all they've got. I'd ignore them. I don't worry about that. You know, they don't put food on my table, and they don't. They don't raise my kids, um, and they don't live in my head, so it doesn't bother me. Uh, but having said that, I was surprised at how little of it I got. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I was, I was, you know, a number of friends I called ahead of time and told them um, because I had respect for them um, and I wanted them to know. And and they were like, you know, we've always known you to be true to yourself and honest about what you believe, and this is totally consistent with the Michael Steele that we know. Um, and, you know, they know I can get partisan when I have to, I, and I have when I was state, county chairman, national chairman. Yeah, I, I can throw down and beat up some Democrats, but that's not what this moment is about, Bruce. This moment is about the country um, and whether or not we really value this thing we call America. And to the extent that we have a president that embraces white nationalism, and, yes, that's what he does. And don't let's not, let's not sugarcoat it and dance around it and pretend – that, you know, it's just, you know, he's just, just giving, you know, sort of a light touch. No, it's a full embrace because when you're giving multiple chances to to state as president and to create an environment as president where you emphatically denounce it and make it clear that's not who we are and you, you slide off of that and you don't even come close to doing that, then, yeah, okay, you're embracing it. I'm sorry, that's what you're doing. So when you have all these little these little storylines that add up to one large narrative about who this man is and what he represents, he doesn't represent me. He doesn't represent my values. And even as much as I disagree with Barack Obama and his policies, you know, I could I could still say, yeah, he represents me as a mayor. He represents my values, his family, no scandals, no one grifting off the government. No one, you know, directing funds and resources to their private enterprises, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his children weren't advisors to the president uh, and all that crazy crap. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what we expect of a president. We, we expect the president not to do those things. <laughs> 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 Words that... <laughs> In a past, uh, in a in, a, in another time, didn't need to be said. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Can you get right? Can you imagine that? I mean, we're sitting here talking about stuff. And said, yeah, you know, this is the president. I'm like the Washington Post story. You know, the the, the Secret Service being charged. You know, seventy, eighty thousand dollars from Trump properties for you know, for overpriced hotel rooms. When the per diem is hundred and seventy five dollars, they're paying five times that amount. For for a room that's not worth five times that amount, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So if you if you run for governor uh, in in two years or Senate uh, the United States Senate for Maryland in two or four years, your prime this is the first line of attack in the prime that, that you will receive in the primary. Uh, what that I that uh, yeah. the first lines of it. Well, I love the way you. I love the way you sort of slid that. I'm right. For. <laughs> <laughs> let's get the, let's get you're, that you're really out of the good, way now. Yeah. You're really good. I love the way you slid that. Oh, yeah, Michael feels running for for governor in two years. Oh, well, okay, you, you told you. Channel Five when when Channel Five asked if you were going <laughs> to put your toe in the water. You said. Toes love water, so I'm. This is a toes, toes, toes do love water. Toes do love water, uh, and the water's nice and warm. Um, yeah, yeah. What's the line of attack? I did. I didn't support a grifter. I didn't support a man who's not a Republican and who's not a conservative. I did. I didn't support a man who's not pro-life. I didn't support a man who's a small government conservative. I, I didn't support a man who who created a trillion dollars worth of deficits in three years. I didn't support a man who was a, who's created five, four trillion dollars of new debt, six trillion dollars of new debt. Oh, oh, that's the guy I didn't support. I'm still a Republican. I'm still a conservative. What are you? Cause you supported that. 
that's my that's my response. So y'all go ahead and press for that because that's that's what you're going to get. Because as much as you want to look at me and say, well, you're not this and you're not that, baby, you need to turn that mirror around and look at who, who you supported. Look at the guy you supported. So, so by extension, you support putting children in cages. You support banning Muslims from our country. You support building a wall to keep out immigrants who are searching the very freedom that you claim everyone wants. And, yeah, I'm all about standing in line and doing the right way, but I'm not going to put your kid in a cage over it, right? That's who you support. Oh, you support, the, you support white nationalism. You support Proud Boys, stand by, stand ready, just be, you know. You support a president who can't even tell you that if I, if I lose the election that I will do as all presidents, all 244 presidents of yeah, but 40, well, 44 presidents before me over 244 years that I'm just going to, you know, go go quietly into that good night? Come on, stop it. <laughs> We're not having a debate over policies. We're not having a debate over principles. We're having a debate over principles. We were talking about, you know, you're part of a party that doesn't have a damn platform. Do you worry uh, about the uh, sort of the Trump uh, about Trumpism being the dominant energy. Absolutely, <laughs> you don't have to finish that thought. Yeah, absolutely. Not even just in the party, Bruce, in the country, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this goes beyond the parties. Mm-hmm. This is an infection of the country. This is gonna this is gonna take some time to clean out, and if the man gets a second term. You think what he's done in the first term? Imagine an unfettered, unchecked president who's even more unfettered and unchecked than he was. I mean, because unless the Democrats win the Senate, Mitch McConnell doesn't have what it's going to take to push up against the Donald Trump who has, you know, is technically a, a lame duck. I mean, this man is already talking about having 12 years. He doesn't, he's not joking about that. Listen to what Michael Cohen is telling people. Donald Trump doesn't joke about stuff. He's not, a, he's not a man who makes funny. He doesn't do light. He tells you what he's thinking. He tells you what he's feeling. That's been my experience working with him outside of politics. That was my experience of working with him in the 2015-2016 cycle inside politics. The man doesn't joke. So when he's sitting up there talking about, eh, we could probably do you know, 12 years. Maybe 16. He's not joking. He consistently says the quiet part out loud. <laughs> Always. And these people run around like, oh, you know, don't, you, know, you know, don't believe all of that. He's just, come on, people. And the people who are saying that don't know him. They've never worked with him. The people who have are telling you he's not joking, and yet you want to ignore them because you don't like what they're saying and rather accept what Donald Trump is telling you as gospel when that gospel is infected with lies. How many people are buried in a ground right now or sick in a hospital because they listen to this numbnut talk about, oh, yeah, um, masks, masks, don't wear masks. I mean, how the hell do you politicize masks in the middle of a pandemic? How does that happen? So it's not just the party. It's the country. <laughs> that has to get off of this Trumpism. But the Trumpism, I think, is a reflection of something that's more deeply rooted and deeply seated in the country, that a lot of people, for a whole host of reasons, uh, now are angry and pissed off at each other, at foreigners, at, at perceived and imagined uh, enemies, um, we've not been this angry as a nation in a long time. Mm-hmm. And we're angry at each other over dumb stuff. And you have someone who picks at those scabs in a way that reinfects on racism, reinfects on xenophobia, reinfects on misogyny, reinfects on a whole host of social ills. Um, so you don't you don't wind up healing. You wind up getting sick again, and sometimes sicker. And and I just think that that is something that we're going to have to grapple with as a nation. Where do you think Trump's 
COVID response will rank in the history of modern presidential decision-making. One of the greatest failures of any president at any time, period. I mean, you, the 200, 230,000 dead people, I mean, I don't, how, how else do you explain that? Eight, nine million Americans are, are sick with new spikes. I mean, we're, we're sitting here in a conversation at a time when seven months in, eight months into this thing, we just had our highest daily number of cases. And his rationale is, well, of course, because, you know, they're testing. <laughs> I was like, I, just, I mean, when, you, when you're stuck in that kind of stupid, it just, it just no wonder. There's just no wonder. And so the reality for me is I can't listen to him. I, there's nothing that's going to be intelligible that's going to benefit me and my family. I can't. When the man starts speaking on COVID-19, I turn the television off because there's nothing of value. Now, when Dr. Fauci talks, when, when serious reporters in the health, you know, who cover health issues and, um, you know, when the vice, even the vice president, when the vice president talks, okay, I'm listening. But when Trump opens up his mouth, I can't because this is the same man told me that, well, you know, we've looked at injecting you with, the, with bleach. And we, we can do that, right? And you've got the the bricks sitting in the corner going, no, we can't do that. <laughs> Injecting you with bleach? What are you talking about? How do you, how do how does any how does anyone anyone stand up and even suggest such a thing? So it just you can't take any of it seriously at this point, in my view. It just it just it's dangerous to your health, and people have to decide. You know, do you want to do you want to Try to remain healthy, or do you want to take a huge risk with your life? And you've got all these people showing up these at these rallies in hot spots, wearing no masks, to see this guy stand there, who I still believe is probably—I mean, they got him so juiced up on. I firmly believe it. He's got to be juiced up on something because it, it, make, it makes no sense. You've got all these doctors around you. You get sick with COVID, and you're about like three days later. Oh yeah, it's no big deal. Really? Come on. I mean, there's just so much. that's just I'm not willing to risk. I'm just not. So, as someone who has uh, run as a Republican successfully, made history, has worked in the trenches for the party at every level, from county to the to the national. Uh, but you've taken this extraordinary step that I don't expect right. to see again in my lifetime, where the former chairman of uh, the former national chairman of one party, soon after his tenure, endorses the presidential candidate of another party in the heat of a political battle, where you know your 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 act that the action that you took has the actual potential to sway votes. Um, are you are you Michael Steele rooting for Republicans can keep to keep control of the Senate or having said that you're for Joe Biden this time, do you want him to have both houses of Congress where his, his odds of getting an agenda through are enhanced? You know, I think, as I said to Joe, uh, uh, the vice president, I'm, I'm prepared to, to battle you on, on crazy stuff. So you come to talk about some Green New Deal and and, you know, nationalizing health care, I'm going to be right in the trenches against you, notwithstanding any endorsement. But, again, the endorsement was not on policy. The endorsement was on the man, of the man, not of the policies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not an election about any policies. There's no, no one's going to the polls um, because they want to cast a vote in support of, of, of Donald Trump's energy policy or, or Joe Biden's you know, infrastructure plan. Um, That's not what this election is about, and I don't think we need to get that twisted. There will be people who make cases, as we saw in 2018, around health care because health care is going to tie to COVID, and COVID is dominating everybody's life. Absolutely. But Republicans are out there running on their tax cuts. They're not running on the – they're running on the Supreme Court only because of the actions taken, but that – pissed off a lot of people so there's i don't know if that's a real win for them um yeah to stoke the base 
who are happy to see, you know, seeing. And I, I, I think uh, Coney Barrett is going to be an amazing justice. I just hate the way the process was used um, and abused and politicized with each of these selections um, going back to Robert Bork, we have every time weakened the Supreme Court and its ability to stay out of the political fray to the point where now these decisions that are coming out are being viewed through a political lens, not through a judicial one, not through a constitutional one, and that undermines the whole effort behind what we're doing. So no one's going to the polls on that. So let's just be clear about what the election isn't. Uh, in terms of the Senate, um, I have been on the record and very clear in my disappointment with the leadership uh, by Republicans to stand up against a bully, to stand up against uh, uh, a president uh, who says that the, the you know uh, that he has uh, under the Constitution the right to do whatever he wants. Are he under Article Two? I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. <laughs> no, you can't. There's this little thing called checks and balance. And the fact that the, the U.S. Senate refused to be a check um, creates a problem, and that problem will, will be resolved at the ballot box. And it is very likely they will lose the Senate, uh, and probably deservedly so, because you've let down the American people. You cannot you know, do this sort of, well, I'll vote against something in committee, but I'll vote for it on the floor. Really? America doesn't they don't they don't get that distinction. The only thing they know is when it when the vote matters and that's the floor vote, you stood against them. You didn't stand with them. Um and, and so that that's that's something that each of these senators are gonna to have to reconcile. At the beginning of this cycle, uh the Senate was not in play for Republicans. That's right. They I'd forgotten they, that. They, the Senate was not in play. So Everyone has to step back and go, wait a minute, so how did the Senate become in play? How are you now losing um, Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, two seats potentially in Georgia, Iowa? <laughs> I mean, that's not Michael Steele. That's not, you know, Joe Scarborough. That's not none of us Republicans out here going, hello, fellas, uh, you're really starting to piss Americans off here because you are – giving power and, and, and credence to someone who is abusing the system. And, and so, yeah, so they'll have to account for that. Um, I was just reading, I think, on Axios uh, today, I'd forgotten this, that uh, after 2012, Reince Priebus did a postmortem that basically begged uh, party activists to um, take steps to broaden the tent. Because the, mm -hmm. demographic, because the demographic shifts that we're seeing and the change in, in, in attitudes uh, on issues like same, on, uh, marriage equality, for example, sure. uh, that the country's on the move uh, and that you can't rely on the same uh, demographics that might have fueled victories uh, past. Let me pivot, though, from that, uh, just in the interest of time. Um, could there ever be a Larry Hogan? So, so I, I raised the Reince Priebus thing because uh, I think you'll agree. I think most people would agree that that postmortem was was ignored. Um, uh, could there ever be a Larry ignored. Hogan lane in modern Republican politics at the sure. national level? Sure, sure, it's there. It's there. We just have to we just have to elevate it. This, this is this is what I'm talking about. Cleaning out the party. What the party needs right now is a political enema. Um, and it will take the, the Michael Steele's, the Larry Hogan's, the, the John Kasich's, um, and, and others, uh, you know, uh, the Condoleezza Rice's, yes, even the George Bush's, um, to the extent that they want to involved in this, this renewal of the party to, to, to clean it out, for sure. The lane is there. Um, those small government values, look, we were a party up until 1980 that always recognize that the individual gets to decide in, within their community how to live their lives, who they love, how to behave, et cetera. Those, those we've always ceded to the state. That's what the Tenth Amendment was about. We never wanted to federalize that. We never wanted to federalize social issues. We never wanted to federalize behavior, right? Uh, we've become that party, and we've used 
instrument like then the moral majority, now right-wing evangelicalism, evangelicalism um, um, as a cudgel against the American people, which has now come back to bite them on the behind because in spite of that, um, America has continued to move forward on issues like uh, equality uh, in marriage, equality. And while I'm not someone I support civil unions, I appreciate the, the Pope's recent position, by the way. Um, I do draw the line because of my faith tradition on marriage. But hey, that's 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 a political decision. I would never want to. I would never want to have that in a situation where the you know the federal government is dictating to you or to me how we should love and how we should live. Um, and, and so these types of issues are, are still ripe for um, conversation and communication in the political space without the demagoguery and without the bullying and without the, the condescension and demeaning of, of, of other human beings and their choices. Um, we were a party that always respected that, um, and yet – uh, we've seeded that, and I, and I think a lot of us want to fight to get that back um, and just focus on making sure that government, to the extent that it is engaged, is, is, in, is, it is engaged efficiently and without the interference in the personal choices and decisions that individuals make. Um, and so uh, that's the libertarian wing, uh, if you will. That's, that's part of our, our founding root um, as, as a national party. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of us would like to, to sort of get back to that. Um, leave, leave those, those heavy-weighted decisions to our pastors and our imams and our ministers and our rabbis. Uh, leave, leave those difficult choices um, over life and death issues and family issues to the moms and pops and the dads and dads and moms and moms out there. We don't, we don't, need, we don't need to have the government in that space. I want to take you back just briefly to uh, a particular day in January of 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, my <laughs> Annapolis. Uh, my uh, strongest memory from that day is of how many African American Democrats were celebrating, were high fiving, were were giddy that you had broken through. That a Republican, I mean Kathleen Kennedy Townsend and her running mate, right. uh, Mr. Larson, I think, um, yep. had and just lost in, in an upset. And the joy that I that I witnessed um, for, because of the breakthrough, because of what your breakthrough victory represented, uh, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty obvious. It was it was a pretty cool thing to see in in a sense. Uh, just briefly, uh, what was that day like for you? It was amazing. Um, there, there's no more powerful moment except my marriage and the birth of my two sons. Um, greater than that. And it just, because I realized the weight of the moment, but I also realized what it said to my sons who were on the platform witnessing that and what it said to the African-American kids out in the crowd that day. Um, And the power, I I don't think a lot of people realize the real power of the symbolism of the moment, not just on the front side of the state capitol where we were. I remember standing there raising my hand and saying the oath. And you know what I was thinking about? Hmm. I was thinking that literally down the hill behind me in the Annapolis Harbor, 300 years of before, a young black man named Kunta Kente was brought to this country as a slave 200 years before. He was brought here as a slave, and he landed at that port in chains. And here on this day, on the front steps of this capital, one of the first, one formerly the United States capital, we, Maryland was the capital of this country for a brief moment, um, in a state house where uh, George Washington surrendered his commission and where uh, Thomas Jefferson worked on the second floor, I was standing there being inaugurated as the seventh lieutenant governor and the first Republican um, and the first African-American. Um, and that is just, it was a powerful moment. And it, and it still says a lot about 
all of our potentials um, and what we can do as a country and what we can do as individuals. Um, and to sort of round, to, to complete the circle of the conversation, um, it was one of the things that solidified my decision to endorse Joe Biden because I thought about the five Democratic elected officials from Prince George's County who three years later endorsed me for the United States Senate when I ran in 2006. They took the risk on me and my leadership, even though they disagree with me on a lot of policy, particularly my pro-life views um, and some of my tax and fiscal views, um, but yet they saw leadership. And they thought, as they expressed to me, while I disagree with you vehemently on some of the policy stances that you have, I know you'll be a good leader for the state and you'll do what's in the best interest of the people, not what's in your best interest. And that was, that was the solidifying moment for me when I said, yeah, I'll do this because this is a way to pay it, pay it forward, that we can do good politics in this country. And we can do so with, with, without being blinded by partisanship. And I can reach across the aisle and embrace a leader like Joe Biden as Democrats reached across the aisle and embraced me when I ran for the U.S. Senate. Michael Steele, great conversation as always. I really appreciate you spending so much time. I apologize for going over, but uh, no, it's always good. Great conversation. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you, and I'm so honored to have been a part of the launch. And I wish you guys all the success in the world. Um, And uh, I really appreciate the chance to be with you. Thanks. I'll, I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye bye. All right. Now we're joined by Josh Kurtz, the editor of Maryland Matters, who is going to talk to me a little bit about what happened this past week and what we can expect out of the week to come. Sounds good. First, can you highlight a few stories from this week on MarylandMatters.org if people haven't been over there reading? Yes. Well, they ought to be there reading, but we've had, a few <laughs> good, we've had several good stories this week. Um, certainly, I mean, I think our ongoing election coverage has just been stellar and We've been writing a lot about the process, which is especially important in this uh, pandemic pandemic election year. Um, So on Monday, we sent all our reporters to early voting sites around the state for the first day. And we did just a really nice uh, look at what was on people's minds, what they were facing at the polls. Um, It was just a really good read and a good team effort. Another great story we had this week was by Bruce DePoit um, about all the pipelines and wires and cables underneath the Beltway and Interstate 270 that could be interrupted by any, uh, you know, major construction and road widening there. There could be significant implications for commuters, for ratepayers, for taxpayers, um, and for the companies themselves. There are 21 in all that could be impacted. So that was a really no pun intended, groundbreaking story, I thought. Um, and and uh, we also had a piece uh, this week about looking at uh, Marylanders who could wind up in prominent roles in the Biden administration. And that's always something fun to speculate about. So those were some of the highlights. I, I love that cabinet story. Um, how, do, how do you go about writing a piece like that? Well, You know, in the end, it's really just informed speculation. You can't really say anything definitive in a piece like that. But there are any number of people you can talk to in Maryland, in Washington, D.C., people who sort of straddle both worlds um, just to sort of get their uh, educated guesses and you kind of build it from there. Um, You know, I don't expect our one loss record will be that great when all is said and done, but these all seem like plausible people with the right set of policy chops and experience and political connections who could wind up in an, in an administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, naturally, we're paying so much attention to the election right now, but kind of lost in that news um, was a poll that came out this week, which shows that once again, Governor Larry Hogan has very high popularity numbers. Could you uh, update us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, uh, the latest poll uh, was a was a Gonzalez poll, and once again, Governor Hogan's uh, approval ratings were in the seventies. Um, 
and he's really pretty much been there for years now. Um, and it's just a phenomenon. And even more amazing now is he's 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 doing better among Democrats than he is among Republicans, which um, is just it's mind blowing. Um, and we could we could probably dedicate a whole uh, a whole show to it. Maybe we should. But it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's fascinating. And do you think that um, was there any insight as to why he might be more popular among Democrats? Is it is it COVID and mask wearing potentially the economy I reopening? Yeah, I mean he's getting he's getting especially high marks. Well, he's he's been popular with Democrats for a while, you know, for a few right. years. But now he's getting especially high marks for his um, handling of uh, of uh, the public health crisis. And I think some of the restrictions he's put in place, and you know, the the wearing a mask in public places, those orders, I think, puts put him at odds with uh, a lot of Republicans, which is probably why his numbers aren't quite as high, but mind you, they're still high. I mean, among Republicans, they were 70%. And among Democrats, it was like 76 or 77%. So, you know, there isn't much disparity, but that's probably explains why there is. Mm -hmm. um, so more than 1.3 million Marylanders have already voted and we are, you know, still several days away from the election. What do you think that means for, for election night and for the results here in Maryland? Well, I, I think the number of early voters is going to remain high through the end of early voting. But I actually think election day voters, the voting turnout is going to be pretty high, too. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't uh, the, the elections officials are counting the early ballots now. Um, they can't make them public till after every poll has closed on election night. But I'm cautiously optimistic that we will start getting some numbers fairly quickly. I mean, it's not going to be 8.01 p.m., but I think we'll get some numbers fairly quickly and we'll get pretty high turnouts when these numbers come in. So I think there'll be a very representative sample of what's going on. So the first numbers we see could be, uh, you know, essentially the final numbers for all intents and purposes. Maybe yeah. I'm being a little optimistic here. But, yeah. <laughs> well, as a reporter in a state where they are processing ballots before election day, I am like really looking forward to seeing, you know, how many people are included in that first batch right. of statistics we get on election night. Um, yeah. It'll be a whole new yeah. world. <laughs> it will. They, they won't be able to tell us, you know, like X, they, they won't be able to say right away it's X number of votes received, but you know, we'll, It'll be a chunk, a sizable chunk. I yeah. Think. And um, we're doing the Maryland Matters election contest right now. And yes. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So uh, what is it and what are you asking people to attempt to predict? Right. Well, this is our third election contest now. Um, and we've asked uh, 10 basic questions and then we have a couple of uh, tiebreakers. And really, you know, it's it's stuff like, you know, who's going to carry Maryland in the presidential race? What are the percentages of the votes going to be among the presidential contenders? We ask about the mayoral election in Baltimore and the election for Cecil County executive. Um, we're asking about um, the one competitive general election for city council in Baltimore, where by the way, the, the more competitive challenger is a member of the Green Party, not uh, the Republican Party. Um, you know, we ask about ballot questions. We ask about some of the people uh, Larry Hogan has endorsed out of state and how they'll fare. Some of these are sort of, you know, guesswork, choose percentages. Um, we ask about some congressional races. So it's, it's a hodgepodge, but, you know, um, you have to know your stuff. And what is the prize for knowing stuff? <laughs> Bragging rights or, or yeah, what? Well, <laughs> What's it, in the Maryland it, Matters budget? It, yeah, well, for the first two uh, for the first two um, contests, the the prize was a lunch with me, which some might argue is not a prize and is actually <laughs> punishment. But um, you know, and we'll have to think of some you know COVID safe equivalent uh, for this one. It could be just lunch with me down the line or, you know, I have some other ideas for uh, alternatives, but we'll see about it. But whatever, whatever, priceless. And the bragging rights are priceless. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
Um, well, thank you, Josh. I'm so glad you were able to phone in and join us. It's great to hear from you as always. Thank you, Danielle. Now, I'm frequently jealous of my colleague Bennett LaCrone, who joined Maryland Matters as a Report for America fellow earlier this year, because he gets to cover the Maryland State Board of Elections. For years, I nerded out all alone at all of the board's marathon meetings, and Bennett joined staff just as the 2020 election started heating up, and the board meetings got a whole lot more interesting. This week, Bennett caught up with the board's vice chair, PJ Hogan. We listen in on their phone call now. PJ, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's just jump right into it. Early voting started this week in Maryland, and voters have turned out in droves to cast your ballots. From your end, PJ, how are things going so far? You know, I don't want to jinx anything, but so far, it's, it's, I think it's going very well. Um, uh, I, mean, I, I think once, once we put everything in place, you know, from uh, um, mailing out, uh, you know, uh, ballots to uh, establishing the early voting centers, the drop boxes, uh, the election day voting centers, you know, the train kind of left the station. I think it's on track to uh, uh, to arrive at its destination uh, by 8 p.m. on November 3rd. Um, mm -hmm. We've had you know, obviously record numbers of people who have voted, uh, you know, with mail-in ballots. Um, the uh, early voting, uh, as you mentioned, began um, Monday with uh, over 160,000 uh, people voting early that day, and I, I believe yesterday, um, Tuesday, was about 150,000 uh, who voted early. So I'm hoping that, you know, there's still a lot of people that requested a mail-in ballot and, and have those. I'm hoping they drop those in drop boxes. Um, and I'm just hoping as many people take advantage of the mail-in ballots, the early voting. So when we come to November 3rd, Election Day, um, you know, there, most people have voted, uh, the vast majority have voted. That's my hope. Mm -hmm. And more than 161,000 voters turned out on the first day of early voting, breaking single-day early voting record. Did that surprise you at all? Um, no, no, it didn't. Given uh, – I've never, ever seen an election like this. I mean, you would have to be living under a rock to not know that there's an election coming. I mean, uh, it has been on everyone's mind for months and months. Uh, so I think there's just incredible enthusiasm and desire for, uh, on behalf of people to vote. So didn't surprise me at all. And we just heard from Michael Steele, who has recently made national headlines over support for Joe Biden. BJ, can you reflect on your own switch from Republican to Democrat and how that came to be? Uh, yeah, I mean, when I was first in the state Senate, um, Senate Republican caucus that I served in was, uh, you know, somewhat moderate uh, Republican caucus. That's what fit my uh, my views, my politics. Uh, I saw that change over time. Um, I actually felt like the party left me. I didn't. I didn't leave the party. Uh, my views. Um, uh, on policies and legislation fit more with a uh, uh, with the Democrats, um, and I, I see the kind of the same thing happening now, where you've got a lot of Republicans. Who say, this is Trump's party, and they 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 don't feel like they belong. Um, so I, I think something very similar is happening. Mm -hmm. So Governor Larry Hogan's brother is also named Patrick, although his. <laughs> Do you ever get confused for the governor's brother? All the time. Uh, I mean, Patrick, Patrick N. Hogan, uh, the governor's younger brother, and myself, Patrick J. Hogan, we actually both served in the legislature at the same time. I was in the Senate. Uh, he was in the House. Uh, people used to get us confused all the time. We would get each other's mail. Um, and, and to this day, uh, people still confuse us uh, uh, or, you know, mistakenly call one when they're trying to call the other. Mm -hmm. So this episode will be airing the day before Halloween, I believe. Like this election, it's fair to assume that Halloween will be unconventional thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic this year. BJ, do you have any Halloween plans this year? 
Uh, Halloween is is my wife and I's anniversary, so we will be celebrating our um, our anniversary on on Halloween. How did that come to be that you two got married on Halloween? It it was not planned. It just happened to be a uh, a, uh, a date or uh, you know, a, a Saturday uh, back in 1987 that uh, uh, the church that we wanted to get married in and the uh, place where we wanted to have the reception worked out were available that day. But it makes it, I never forget my anniversary. It's great. I'm, <laughs> That's incredible. Halloween every year. Well, folks, there's still time to take advantage of early voting in Maryland. It will run Monday, November 2nd. You can find an early voting center in your county on our website. We've got maps of both early voting centers and election day voting centers. They'll be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. daily. DJ, any closing thoughts for voters? Uh, just plead with voters to, to, to vote as early as you can. Get you know, uh, get it. Don't wait till uh, election day. And if you have a ballot. Uh, drop it in a drop box. It, it will be counted. Uh, I know there's, there's been talk about some people, I want to see my ballot. I want to stand in line, take my ballot into the voting center and, and see it scanned. It, if you drop it in a drop box, the Board of Elections picks up those ballots twice a day and counts them. It will be counted. Sounds good. TJ, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this first Maryland Chatters podcast. We're a work in progress, but we plan to expand and evolve over time. Do you have anyone in mind that you think we should talk to? Please share your suggestions by emailing Josh at jkurtz at marylandmatters.org. Today's show was produced by myself, Danielle Gaines, and the Maryland Matters staff. You can read more of our nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism at MarylandMatters.org, and don't forget to sign up for our daily newsletter. Thanks again for joining us for some chatter that matters.